And now I'd like to play Siswar uh, Tunis, a night in Tunisia. yesterday the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. What can be more enjoyable in Canadian life than to hear a concert, an opera, or a play in one of our grand old theatres? Regrettably, most have been demolished over the years and many were modernized beyond recognition. But there's no comparing an evening at the Orpheum in Vancouver, the Capitole in Quebec City, or at Massey Hall in Toronto. To talk about that experience and to pierce the mystery of these old halls, I've asked David McPherson to join me in conversation. His new book is entitled Massey Hall, and it's published by Dundurn Press. We reached him at his office in Waterloo, Ontario. David, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Patrice. David, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. Tell me about your first experience at Massey Hall. Well, I, I grew up in Kitchener-Waterloo. Uh, it's where I moved back to uh, about five, six years ago. But uh, So my experience with Massey uh, came much later than most. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, my first concerts were at the uh, C&E, the exhibition, uh, and other clubs around Toronto. And for some reason, I, I, I did not go to a show at Massey Hall until I moved there uh, following uh, university uh, in the early 2000s. So my first experience was seeing uh, The Pretenders, uh, actually, which was a fantastic show. Went with my uh, roommate, who I was living with at the time, who was a, a, a fellow uh, music lover. And I, I was hooked, obviously. And uh, from that moment on, I, I started to learn more about the incredible history of this uh, national treasure. And uh, I went to, you know, dozens upon dozens of shows over the next uh, 20 plus years. And many of them I, I went to with my father, which uh, has been a great, uh, great way to uh, share a lot of musical moments. So uh, uh, it's such an amazing uh, piece of history and uh, so happy that, as you mentioned, unlike some some of these old buildings, it, it never did face the wrecking ball, and it's been preserved. It's I have wonderful memories. Uh, I, I, I unfortunately don't think I've got enough of Massey Hall over the years, but my most memorable experience, it may surprise you, it's Tafel Music's Messiah. Uh, and not only the Messiah, but the sing-along Messiah. I think it's one of the happiest moments uh, I've I've experienced at at um, at Massey Hall uh, when when the the conductor dresses up as uh, as Handel and the audience sings along with the orchestra and the place vibrates like a like a, the wonderful music box that it is. I mean, you almost feel when when the Hallelujah chorus 
uh, is in full thrust. I mean, you're going to lift the roof off, off Massey Hall. But enough of me. Um, let's talk about your book. Uh, it offers all sorts of details about the wide variety of events that have taken place uh, at Massey Hall over 100 years. What trends have you seen about the kind of shows or the kind of things that take place at Massey Hall? Uh, well, the, the biggest trend, really, and it, it goes back to uh, the founder of the hall, uh, Hart Massey, who, who gave it as a gift to the city uh, back in 1894 when it opened. Uh, it, it has been a place for the people. Uh, that That's what Hart wanted, and it really has continued through the 127 years now that the hall's been opened. Because uh, everything has happened there from, you know, in the early days, religious uh, revivals and temperance meetings. Uh, to boxing matches. There was even typewriting contests there. Uh, so, I mean, real eclectic mix. I mean, you know, in the 50s, you had a memorial to Stalin that occurred at the hall. So uh, in terms of themes, uh, really, I think that is a theme that it's been a place for the people uh, and a community gathering place, if you will. Uh, and that's what Hart wanted. And it's amazing that it's lasted as long as it has. Uh, it, it opened uh, just a year or two after Carnegie Hall in New York, and really the two of them uh, parallel in, in their history in terms of, you know, both faced the wrecking ball at one point in time, but both have survived and both were, you know, philanthropic gifts by, uh, you know, industrialists and uh, self-made men. So, uh, it, it's just wonderful that we still have, as you said, this intimate uh, and grand theater um, that you know future generations can can enjoy uh, having those magical moments. And that certainly comes across in your book that Massey Hall was the connection point for Torontonians and and music. Can you tell me? Let's, let's take some of those things apart. Can you tell me about, for example, the association with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra uh, and the Mendelssohn Choir? Yeah, well, well, both those uh, associations or, or groups, as you mentioned, the uh, the TSO and the Mendelssohn Choir, they, they were some of the uh, earliest tenants uh, of the building and some of the longest. Uh, basically, the TSO, uh, well, the Mendelssohn Choir to begin with, I think, uh, w was founded not long after the hall, and, and it, it became a permanent uh, feature of the hall for probably the next uh you know, hundred plus years or more, and they played Handel's Messiah too, didn't they? On the first, the first night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a great affection in Toronto for the Handel's Messiah. Like you said, that that speaks to the hall too. There's a real tradition of uh, you know every year they had the uh, the Messiah, as you said, or Christmas shows, or uh, and the same with the TSO. I mean, it became it just grew um, over the years. And various conductors, uh, as it grew in popularity, you know, they had the regular kind of pops performances, uh, and they were there until uh, Roy Thompson Hall was built, and that's when they decided to to move over to the new building. Um, but you know, they they were there from probably the 1910s to you know probably over 70 years, I think it was uh, that the TSO was a fixture. Uh, at the hall. So. Was it a mistake to move? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I, I don't think so. Uh, you know, there is uh, people within the classical uh, uh, realm that uh, as much as Massey Hall is uh, known for its acoustics, uh, they felt it was just uh, getting to the point 
that uh, didn't have the the best acoustics for classical music. Uh, I think also the the facilities in terms of uh, the musicians, like they they were in the basement, they had to keep all their instruments down there. So there there's a number of things that just eventually led them to move. Uh, it was it obviously was a big vacancy for the hall uh, to have to fill all those nights, and so I think in the early '80s. Uh, you combine that with the the recession that uh, uh, prolonged recession. Uh, there were some grim years there for Massey, but uh, luckily, you know, they uh, rebounded, and uh, you know, new generations discovered the hall, and it, it became it started to shine once again. Now, internationally, um, there's one date that seems to have been retained with regards to Massey Hall, and that's May fifteenth, nineteen fifty three. What happened on that special night? Well, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, as a historian, a, a lot of these things, uh, when they happen, sometimes they weren't uh, really much. And, and that date uh, is one of those. It, it, it was a jazz concert that, uh, you know, the Toronto Jazz Society had, had put on. And I, I think the hall was maybe half full. It, it really wasn't that well attended. Uh, but it, in the ensuing years, it's become legendary and, and become known as the greatest jazz concert of all time because it, it was the quintet of uh, Dizzy Gillespie, Bud Powell, uh, Max Roach, uh, Charlie Parker, and uh, Charles Mingus. And uh, it, it was the first time that those five ever appeared on stage together, and and since they never did. But uh, you know, so it's been kind of mythologized, if you will, that uh, in the ensuing years. You know, there was a live record that was uh, put out, uh, and so that helped to uh, perpetuate this myth that it was the greatest jazz concert of all time. But uh, at, at the time, it uh, it really wasn't, uh, you know, as I said, not a lot of tickets were sold, and Torontonians uh, didn't seem as interested in it. Uh, apparently, there was a big uh, boxing match that same night, you know, with Jack Dempsey, I think, and some say that was part of the reason that people were you know, glued to their TVs, watching the fight, didn't want to go out to a concert, but... Uh... Well, I tell you, I, I, I have a scratchy old version of it on tape, and uh, when I cracked open your book, I put the tape into my machine, and uh, I read the first three or four chapters by listening listening to that thing on loop. Uh, it's wonderful. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a wonderful concert, and wonderful musicians, and it really, for me... Uh, it really brought me back to, to, to Massey Hall. But, you know, of course, I mean, you went to see a rock concert there. Uh, rock music legends have played there. Are there any culturally significant stories that you particularly like uh, about the rock musicians at Massey Hall? Yeah, I mean, just uh, continuing on from the uh, the live at Massey from, you know, the jazz quintet, I mean, that that's one thing that's... Uh, there's been so many records recorded there because the acoustics uh, are so good. I mean, you have Neil Young's, uh, you know, famous 1971 record uh, live at Massey uh, recorded there. Uh, and then so many other Canadians from uh, Burden Cummings to Blue Rodeo, uh, Rush in 1976 uh, with their All the World's a Stage record. I mean, you know, those are all big cultural uh, significant moments. Um, but when it comes to rock, I mean, uh, one of the ones that stands out for sure is uh, when Bob Dylan came uh, in 65, I think it was, with, uh, you know, the Hawks uh, was his backing band who went on to form the band. 
And, uh, you know, they were all Canadians, except for Levon Helm. And, uh, you know, you had Robbie Robertson from Toronto. It was kind of his first time returning home. And uh, this was on the tour, the famous tour where uh, Dylan uh, decided to go electric. And uh, he dropped his acoustics. (laughs) Yeah. And it was probably one of those rare times that, you know, booze rained from the rafters of Massey Hall. Like uh, that was so unusual. And, uh, so, you know, that definitely was a significant cultural moment. And, uh, you know, flash ahead about five years, another a big moment uh, in Canadian music was when they had something called the Maple Music uh, Junket um, that was there. And uh, it was all about, uh, as you're probably aware, you know, in our history, uh, a lot of musicians had to go south of the border, right, to get notoriety or, you know, succeed, like the Joni Mitchells and Neil Youngs and, Leonard Cohen's, but uh, so this was something that was done uh, by the Canadian music industry at the time. They brought over a, a whole bunch of press from Europe uh, to try and showcase uh, our talent. And they had a few shows in Montreal, but then also in uh, Toronto, two nights at Massey Hall, uh, where they, uh, you know, brought in all these uh, acts uh, and like the headliner at the end, and I guess the one that uh, you know, just blew everyone away. It was Crowbar because they they had uh, they had uh, you know a woman coming out of a cake, and they had you know like just a lot of showmanship, and uh, they just they played pretty loud. And I think a lot of these uh, it was a success by all accounts that these European journalists went home and you know spread the word that hey Canada does have a music industry and does have some pretty uh, uh, good talent. And I think uh, from that. You know, some of the musicians who played on the junket were able to get some uh, some gigs in Europe and, uh, you know, move on from there. Well, because your, your list of rockers who've played at Massey Hall is very impressive. I mean, there's, with the exception of the, I mean, am I wrong? With the exception of the Rolling Stones, pretty well everybody played there. Yeah, well, I mean, Keith Richards did a solo show there. That was Penance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it almost was. He had to make up for his crimes by giving a concert at Massey Hall. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, it, it really the prime was in the the 70s. Really, was the time of rock when it really took hold. And you're right. There was very few bands, uh, both uh, you know Canadians and international, uh, that you know didn't go through those doors. Uh, the list is is quite impressive and and that's the amazing thing that uh you talk to a lot of these musicians and i was fortunate uh, in the research for this book I, I tried to interview as many as possible but even some of the americans you know they list massey as one of their favorite places to play oh for good reason let's go back to the origins you you mentioned it at, at the at the beginning but i want to go back and, and dwell on that uh a little bit uh so why is that big red pile at the corner of Victoria and Shooter Street in Toronto named Massey Hall? Yeah, well, it goes back to uh, Hart Massey, who, uh, you know, he was an industrialist, uh, you know, went on to kind of form the Massey uh, Manufacturing Company. Uh, it was farm implements and things. He really expanded the business that his his father had started. And uh you know, he ended up uh, living at Euclid Hall, which is uh, now a Keg Mansion uh, restaurant there in Toronto uh, on Jarvis Street. But uh, his basically, he he always loved the arts. He was a patron of the arts, and as he was uh, like a lot of these uh, industrialists, as they're getting on in years, uh, they want to give back more and more. And uh, 
that's what he decided to do with uh, Massey Hall. He, he wanted a place for Torontonians to gather, a, a place that uh, could celebrate the art, celebrate, uh, you know, culture. And it was also partly a memorial to his eldest son, Charles, who, who died quite young at 36 of uh, typhoid uh, fever. So, uh, you know, that's really what uh, Massey Hall became, a living memorial. And it was a gift for, to uh, Torontonians that uh, to this day, you know, 127 years later, continues to keeps on giving. You draw a parallel in your book between Massey Hall and Carnegie Hall in New York City. Yeah, well, as I briefly mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation, I mean, th there are a lot of similarities that, uh, you know, you had Andrew Carnegie in, in, in uh, the U.S., uh, very similar in terms of a uh, philanthropist that uh, donated that building uh, to the city of New York, uh, as Hart Massey did here, and they only opened about two years apart. Uh, for the longest time, they both were uh, home to their respective uh, top symphonies, and uh, the only thing I'd say, Carnegie, uh, to me at least, it, it always had a bit more upscale, uh, you know, uh, to it. Uh, I don't think they had quite as many of the rock shows and things like that, or the same variety that Massey Hall has had. It, it's been known, I think, more Carnegie. You think of it as a classical music hall, operas, different other events like that. But, uh, you know, beyond that, yeah, I mean, they're two beautiful old buildings that somehow have stood the test of time and even you know both of them you know came very close as i mentioned to facing the wrecking ball when you know people wanted to wanted a new modern building and uh you know same thing in uh, new buildings did arrive uh, here roy thompson hall and down there with the the lincoln center but at least the other ones have survived uh, it wasn't the case of let's destroy this one and replace it with a brand new one that there was a place still for for both uh, venues so so what makes Massey Hall such an excellent place to hear music? Well, I think it's a, a number of things. Uh, first, uh, you know, it's the sight lines. Uh, you know, it's a unique uh, architecturally. Uh, it's unique, I think, for concert halls where it has like the, the upper balconies uh, have a horseshoe shape. And that's even what some of the musicians have told me, like Jim Cuddy from Blue Rodeo talking about it. It's like you know, you're on that stage, it's like uh, the audience is giving you a hug because uh, they just, even if the people are up in the top balcony, I mean, uh, you can hear, you know, whispers. Uh, it, it's that intimate, right? Even though there's 2,500 others in that building plus with you, uh, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like you're in a small club. I love sitting up there. It's fantastic. Yeah, and I think for the most part, uh that's the other piece, the acoustics. Uh, well, you know, there has been some uh, mixed uh, reviews over the years. Uh, I think part of it is when it, the hall is empty, the acoustics aren't very great or weren't in the past. Um, but when the, the hall is filled, I think, uh, you know, there, there's very few venues like it where, to me, yeah, the sound is so perfect. Uh, there's so many stories of musicians, you know, that just were able to play or sing a cappella. Uh, you know, there, I got a story in the book of, uh, you know, a Paul Simon concert where, you know, it wasn't on purpose, but, you know, the the generator and PA system went out and, and he, ha he had to <laughs> sing a, a few songs, you know, without any uh, mics or any amplification. And, you know, it's the type of hall that uh, incredibly, it, it 
allows for that, right? And uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned one of the first shows you saw was Not a Muscuri, and uh, you know, same, yes. <laughs> you know, same thing. I, I I understand there was times where you know, as an encore, people are leaving the building, and you know, she sang like Ave Maria a cappella or something, and uh, you know, just you you, you use that cli- to use that cliche, you. you you could hear a pin drop because, you know, it's just so incredible, the acoustics. Well, you outed me there, David. Uh, Nana Muscuri was one of the very first concerts I attended at Massey Hall. But I'm I'm not the only one, am I? No, I mean, surprisingly, I learned that, uh, you know, Jan Arden is the, uh, has played there the most of any Canadian artist. But in terms of, uh, you know, a... Uh, artist uh, internationally uh you know female artist anonymous curry has played there more than anyone and she has been a consistent performer uh she started i think in the 60s opening for harry belafonte and then she went on to headline herself and she she's basically played up you know up until the 2000s uh i think even as recent as you know a few you know four or five years ago she played her last show there so it's pretty pretty impressive it is, and you know, it was a wonderful concert. I was shocked that she sang in English. I, I knew Nana Mouskouri as as a francophone singer, as a French singer, but uh, the hall was full. I think the Greek community in 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 Toronto was was very much uh, uh, expecting and and an annual or, or, or biannual visit from Nana Muscuri and they filled the hall and, and it was nothing but affection. It was pure affection between her and the audience. Uh, and her, she had a great band and it was, it was a wonderful evening. Uh, a, a real, a real affection that again, to me sort of symbolized this relationship between Massey Hall and the community and the people that they produce there uh and and it was you know a wonderful place uh, so you're saying she she's she holds one of the records for most pre- presentations that's wonderful now massey hall and your book is up is a part of this i take it uh the hall's been closed now for many years uh and put on uh, under major renovation it's it was supposed to reopen uh last year was it but the delay has been because of the pandemic what should we expect from massey hall and now that it's well into its second century. Yeah, well, uh, you know, initially when it was uh, announced that Massey Hall would close uh, for an extended period and go under undergo this, you know, multi-million dollar revitalization, uh, especially from the artist community, there was a bit of uh, trepidation, I guess, if you will, or, you know, anxiety of, you know, are they going to mess with the acoustics? What's going to happen? But um, I was fortunate to, to tour the building throughout construction, and you know i've uh, seen pictures of what the the finished uh, hall is like and you know i can attest that uh, the what they've done is basically taken you know this century plus old building modernized it but but still kept the the core of it uh intact uh without changing the acoustics it's all about uh making things better right uh, like uh i guess the predecessor that kind of started this uh, process, uh, the president uh, from a number of years back, he basically was like, uh, that was his kind of philosophy, you know, change everything, but don't change anything kind of thing, <laughs> uh, you know? Uh, and so it really is about, uh, you know, there, a lot of people might not know, but there was stained glass uh, in the ori- original building. Uh, but because of uh, horse traffic in the early days and sunlight, you know, those were boarded up, you know, well over 100 years ago. Uh, 
they, they've had uh, specialists, uh, a local glass company that uh, have restored all those original stained glass and put them back in place. Uh, yeah, they've added retractable seating in the main hall, uh, which allow just in the in uh, on the floor that allows for uh, you know different options in terms of shows. So if they want to have general admission seating uh, on the floors for some shows, you know some of those more you know, big rock events where people want to get up and dance, they can do that. Um, they have improved, uh, you know, the sound and, and where they can without messing with it, just with, you know, modern, modern technology and uh, brought in a, a, a leading uh, world expert in, in terms of uh, uh, sound. That's Bob Essert. His name is Bob Essert. He's an American and Torontonians will know him because he was the, uh, the acoustics engineer who did Kerner Hall which is the, uh, the hall at the Royal Conservatory of Music. I'm really curious to see uh, how, how his impact will, 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 will change the, the, the shape of the sound in, in Massey Hall. But we're talking about new, so you're saying new structures around the stage. Are we talking about more washrooms for women? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, de- yeah, definitely in terms of uh, <laughs> that, as I said, about modernizing things for the 21st century. That, that was the biggest thing, too. It's, you know, making it more accessible. Um, adding in more washrooms, uh, more, uh, you know, especially for women or for, uh, you know, anyone just uh, yes. A- yes. adding those amenities. <laughs> but the, the biggest and most exciting uh, part of uh, this revitalization, which people are going to notice, is it's not what they've done to the original hall. Uh, it's something that, you know, they wanted to do for a long time, but they didn't have the land uh, to do it. But they were able to get the property in behind, and they built a whole other uh, uh, tower that uh, allows them to have you know new backstage um, dressing rooms that are a lot more modern for the performers, and they have a smaller, uh, more like hundred seat intimate theater. Um, so, because part of uh, Massey Hall's mandate as a not-for-profit is all about artist development, so that's something some people don't know. But they, this allows them; they can bring in some of those emerging artists who aren't quite ready to, you know, fill Massey Hall, uh, but they can still play in the smaller theater. Uh, and then beyond that, they've got a, a studio for uh, musicians. Uh, there's going to be a, a studio built in to this uh, a new Allied Music Center. Uh, so it, it's just really exciting, all, all the all the things that are going to be uh, new. Reading your book, uh, we know that, I mean, I, I, I discovered that um, Massey Hall's been through renovations before, and those renovations were very successful. Uh, you talk about, uh, for example, when they, when they put in a bar, Century's Bar, that was very popular. When they brought in air conditioning, I still remember my first night <laughs> yeah. at Massey Hall was not air conditioned, and boy, that was not very comfortable. It was enjoyable as it was. Uh, you're in a room with uh, 2,500 plus sweaty people. Uh, that's no longer the case. So it, it gets better and better. But but David, I mean, it looks like they've kept the fire escapes on the front elevation. Why, why are we not getting rid of those fire escapes on the front in the front of the hall? No, actually, they have got rid of those. Oh, they uh, have? Yeah, oh, yeah. wonderful. Yeah, okay. they, yeah that, those, those came down, I think, uh, someti- okay. sometime during the pandemic. Uh, that, yeah, and, and that was... Uh, That's uh, good news. Yeah, good news. And, and that was part of the... Uh, 
the other piece of uh, the revitalization. I mean, they cleaned up all the bricks in behind, uh, you know, and so now you can actually see the original. It it was called Massey Music Hall originally before it got condensed to Massey Hall. So you can actually now see that etched in the bricks much more clearly that was uh, covered up by those fire escapes for so many years that uh, I I, I didn't realize I saw a story about it that, you know, they were called like nicknamed the mustache or something. But uh, yeah. It, it defaced the front. I, can, I mean, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna argue uh, against fire safety. Far, far from it. But it really did deface uh, the front of the hall, and it's uh, that's wonderful news that we'll be able to look at it. I mean, it even covered the name for heaven's sake. I mean, it really, it really was uh, was an awkward addition. But they had to do it for obviously good reasons. Yeah, and, and that, that's another thing that obviously with this renovation they've taken that into consideration. I mean, by removing those, they they obviously have into the new plans made it so it's it's very uh uh it's safety conscious uh, if you know in the case of uh an emergency it'll be much easier for people to get out of that place too taking the stairs from the very top i mean i'm a regular of the peanut gallery <laughs> yeah. it's quite a walk down yeah, yeah david i want to talk about uh how you wrote this book it's the classic champlain society question tell us about your sources how did you go about doing the research for this book uh, well, I, I began, uh, there was uh, another book written about the hall to, uh, that came out back in uh, 1994 to uh, celebrate its centennial. And so that was a great uh, primary source that I, uh, you know, I, or secondary source I started with uh, called Intimate Grandeur by William Kilborn, uh, who I believe was a an historian and academic. Um, and, and then from there, it was about... Uh, you know, just delving into Massey Hall's archives. I was very fortunate that they gave me full access to their archives. Uh, and then researching um, Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, uh, old newspaper articles going back, you know, 100 plus years. Uh, and then it was uh, the journalist in me. It was about doing interviews, too. Uh, so I, I interviewed well over 100 people uh a lot of artists, a lot of uh, employees, past and present, people in the music industry, uh, and you know, got their stories. So uh, really, that that's kind of how I went about it. I guess, like any historian, I mean, really trying to look at all the different uh, various sources. Tell me about the archives. Are they on site at Massey Hall? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one of those. I, I think part of these new plans. Uh, uh, well, hopefully they'll have something a little more uh, organized, ex- organized <laughs> yeah. and accessible. But yeah, like a lot of these, uh, you know, old buildings, it's amazing. Uh, their archives were were basically uh, off a parking lot uh, at Roy Thompson Hall, like uh, you know, in, in a in a storage area there. So, uh, but uh, they were preserved pretty well. Uh, you know, uh, lots of bankers' boxes and files, and you know stacks upon stacks of stuff i mean it was neat kind of going through there and even they had old cats costumes as an example uh since you know cats as you mentioned about air conditioning that, yes. that was the one re- one reason back in 80 you know 89 it, it was in there for seven or eight months and that was the one condition that they they had to get air conditioning in so you can't be in that cat costume without air conditioning no <laughs> <laughs> but do you think that those archives i mean again the, the historian and me and the champlain society um do you think there's there's more to discover in those archives? I mean, if you had your your druthers, would you would you go back? Is there more stories that need to be uncovered that or that can be uncovered through those archives? Oh, oh, definitely. I'm sure. I mean, again, as 
you probably know as a historian, somebody who loves history, there's there's always more stories to tell, right? And there's always, I mean, you can only get so much and uh, when you do your research and there, you can always, at least that happens with me afterwards, you're like my last book as an example was on the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto, you know, another old, old uh, venue that had been around, you know, more than 70 years, but you know, same idea, whether it's just someone you run into that, oh, I've got a story. I, did you hear about this? And no, you know, that, that was something new to me. Uh, and the same thing, I think, with Massey. I mean, there it all depends on what angle or what you want to talk about, too. But I think, I, I mean, I, I, I strongly suspect that the point that you make in your book about, about this point of, of reconciliation between the people, the, the cultural community, uh, this, this vital connection uh, among Torontonians at Massey Hall, and this is going back to 1894. There, I, I think that there are, there are many, many stories that we can we can uncover as a political historian. I know for for one thing that you know politicians wrapped up their campaigns at Massey Hall. Uh, Winston Churchill spoke at Massey Hall. Each one of those events probably deserves some treatment of some sort. And again, to, to, to be able to, I mean, again, if the archives will allow you to cre- recreate the atmosphere, I think there's this tremendous... Uh, there's tremendous potential there, and, and again, I could say that about all the other uh, wonderful historic uh, music halls of uh, of our country. You, you mentioned your book on the Horseshoe Tavern. I want to talk a little bit about you as we wrap this up. This is your second book. Your first book was entitled "The Legendary Horseshoe Tavern: A Complete History." Uh, you're regularly featured in all sorts of music publications. What's your What's your next project? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I I'm uh, of the type of view I, I live one day at a time I, I don't like to plan too much uh, but I, I have been considering what what is next uh, right now I think uh, I know it's going to be a busy fall uh, promoting and marketing this book uh, but beyond that I mean I have uh, bandied about the idea of maybe uh, trying my hand at fiction uh, uh, and maybe combining my love of history and doing something and music doing something his, uh, historical fiction uh, story of some sort, but who who knows? I, I still have to uh, sit down and start doing some brainstorming, and uh, you know maybe I'll get out on my bike, uh, go for a long bike ride one of these days, and some you know idea will come into my head. But well, you have a talent for telling the stories of music venues, so I, I I'll, let me root for that. Yeah. But <laughs> I wish you great luck with all the other ones, uh, David McPherson. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about Massey Hall. No, yeah, it's been a pleasure. That was David McPherson, and his book is Massey Hall. It's published by Dundurn Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. Thanks also to our growing list of sponsors, including the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operations. That always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. 
My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of the pandemic on August 31st by our producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.